What a privilege that I, I have the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you today. Um, Pastor John knew that my exams were finished, and so he, he said the idle hands are the devil's, hand, uh, devil's uh, work, workshop, so he gave me some more work to do. But I'm very privileged and thankful that I have the privilege to bring God's Word and give our, our shepherd an opportunity to concentrate as he's writing his dissertation. The passage for today's sermon, uh, in your bulletins, <clears throat> not quite correct, is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the portion of the text I'm going to be preaching on. This is the portion of the text I'd like for us to read. So you'll have to either do it from memory or from your own Bible until we jump into chapter 5, where I think we have the, the PowerPoint available for us. So if you are able, let's stand out of reverence for God's word as he speaks to us. From 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, and you may be seated, sorry, you may be seated. Gracious Lord, we thank you and praise you for the gospel that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that we have in the gospel, that we have, in addition to encouragement in the gospel, power to take hold of that encouragement and then share it with others. Lord, this is what you are calling us to in your word today. Please speak to us 
that we may hear your word, that we may receive it as the word of God, that we may take courage in Christ and what he has done for us in the, in the gospel, and that we may be encouragers of one another to build up the body of Christ for the glory of God. Lord, please use me as your mouthpiece today to, to deliver your word to your people. Speak to us through your spirit, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we are here in, in the book of, of Thessalonians. And as you probably know, the book of, of Thessalonians is, is actually a letter. It's a letter that was written to a church in the city of Thessalonica, which is an ancient Greek city, northernmost port city in the Aegean Sea, and a very important city in the time of the apostles. To help us understand the context of this letter and, and the passage we're looking at today, it's actually very important for us to understand the nature of, of that church and the nature of the church's relationship with, with Paul, with Apostle Paul. So for that, we go back and we look at Acts chapter 17. You don't have to go there, but just to fill you in on, on the background. So this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling through Asia Minor, which is nowadays Turkey. He picks up Timothy as a companion, and they attempt to go into Asia. But the Holy Spirit stops them from going into Asia, and so instead they go north and west into northern Macedonia, which is now like the north of what we call Greece. The Lord brings them to Troas, and if you remember, they have a vision at Troas of a Macedonian man who, who in a vision, Paul's vision, calls Paul to come and help them. And so that, that opens the door for God to bring the gospel through Paul into Europe. So they go into Philippi. And you remember what happened in Philippi. They went out into the, the river where there were God-fearing women. They preached the gospel to Lydia. Lydia heard the message of salvation, believed. And uh, later on, Paul uh, freed a, a, a young woman who had a, a, a spirit where she would pro, uh, foretell the future. And then as a result, there was a commotion and conflict. Paul was put in prison along with Silas. And then God brought an earthquake on the city the earthquake broke down the prison, Paul escaped, or, but Paul didn't escape, and through that, the Philippian jailer was saved. So that, that sets the stage. Paul then left Philippi, walks five days' journey, and arrives in Thessalonica. So th there we are, we're, we're with Paul in Thessalonica, and Paul begins his ministry by going into the synagogue and preaching the gospel. He was, the scripture in Acts chapter 17 says that Paul spent three Sabbaths, successive Sabbaths, reasoning with the Jews and persuading them from the word of God that Jesus is the, Jesus is the Christ. And Acts 17 verse 4 says that some of the Jews were persuaded and they believed in the gospel and as did many, a, a great number of devout Greeks, not a few leading women and voila, God had established the Thessalonian church. However, no sooner than this church had been established, the Jews became jealous. And so we, we don't know exactly when, but within less than, it, no more than a few months of the church being established, the Jews, it says, took wicked men of the rabble, formed a mob, and set the whole city in an uproar, attacking the believers. The believers had to secretly smuggle Paul and his companions out of the city by night leaving this brand new baby church there 
to face the persecution alone. Paul continued on his journey to Berea, to Athens, to Corinth, and then he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. But, but all this while, anxious. What would happen to this church in Thessalonica who were only with him a short time and were facing intense persecution? Would they stand firm? Or were his labors in vain? Paul couldn't bear the anxious agony of waiting to hear from the church. And so when he arrived in, in Corinth, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what happened to them. Timothy went and he came back, bringing with him an excellent report of the church. They were standing firm in the faith. They were standing firm in their love for the saints and their love for Paul and their desire to see him. They always remembered Paul. They longed to be with him. And the testimony of their faith had spread from that region throughout all of Macedonia. And so to express his appreciation and thankfulness for that church and more so for God and his work in that church, Paul writes this letter. And that's what we have. This letter is really a thank you letter, a thank you letter to God for preserving this church and allowing for them to thrive and grow and grow in their faith and grow in their love, even in the midst of persecution, even though they, they did not have Paul there with them. So in chapters one through four, Paul thanks God for the good report. He praises God for the way in which they received the gospel. He praises God for the way in which they had become a model church. And he encourages them to stand firm in the midst of persecution, to love each other and to live a holy life, even as they are uh, facing affliction in a godless world. And that brings us up to where we are today in our passage today from, from chapter four, verse 13. And it seems that Paul is beginning to address what happens to believers when they die. We, we don't know why this was brought up. Perhaps some of the Thessalonians were persecuted to the point of many, some of them being martyred. Or perhaps some of them had fallen sick and had died and were now concerned and grieving for the Christians who had died. And so Paul says in verse four, chapter four, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, which means dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So Paul uses asleep because for a believer, death is really just sleep. And he wants to inform these Thessalonian Christians what happens to a Christian when they die. And so uh, they, may, they may not be troubled and grieved. So he writes in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul is encouraging these believers that they do not have to grieve like those who have no hope because they believe that Jesus died and rose again and through him, God will raise up all his people on the last day. And verse 17 continues, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul is comforting them with the good news. What a good news. The good news of the final resurrection and the final return of Christ. And with this glorious hope, Paul then in verse 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this is not the last time that we'll see Paul urging the church to encourage one another. So let's put an asterisk here and we'll move on and come back to it later. So then Paul moves into chapter 5 and he continues teaching the Thessalonian church about the return of Christ. But now as we get into chapter 5, we're looking at the return of Christ from a different point of view. We're looking at another event that will accompany Christ's return. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5. So it says, Now concerning the, the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Here Paul is, is addressing the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is used uh, to refer to the day of God's judgment, when the wicked will be destroyed. This is what prophet Joel calls the great and fearsome day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness from Joel 2.2. And Paul says that it will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so Paul is now reminding the Thessalonian church of two things. He's reminding them of the imminent return of Christ and the glorious hope that they have to be with him forever. And he's also reminding them of the judgment of God against the wicked when he will pour out his righteous wrath on every wicked deed and every practitioner of godlessness. This is not the first place in this book where Paul is addressing the wrath of God. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul reminded the Thessalonians how they had turned from idols to the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These Thessalonians had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had turned away from the idolatry of the Greeks or the self-righteousness of the Jewish religion, uh, the, the Jewish religion, and they turned in faith to Christ, waiting for Jesus, who would save them from the wrath to come. And, and so their status fundamentally had changed. And so in ber- verse four, Paul says to them, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day, for the, for the day of the Lord, for the coming day of God's judgment to surprise you like a thief. By believing in Jesus, they had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They had become children of light, children of the day, not the children of night, not the ones in darkness. Their status had changed. So they are no longer asleep, but they are awake. They are no longer drunk, but they are sober. And so Paul uses in in verses six to eight, a number of contrasts, four contrasts, to contrast the status of these believers to the unbelieving world around them. So the unbeliever is in darkness, he says, the darkness of spiritual ignorance and death in sin. But the believer is in light, alive in the truth, 
illuminated with the life of God in Christ Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, because the believer is in light, the believer does not belong to the darkness. The unbeliever belongs to the darkness. That is the darkness of, of spiritual ignorance without God and without hope in the world. Well, the believer belongs to the day that, that is free to love God, free to know God and free to walk in relationship with God. And because their status is different, not in the night, but in the day, not in the darkness, but in the light, you expect their behavior also to be changed. And so Paul says, that's true. The unbeliever is asleep complacent, unaware, ignorant of their condition. Well, he calls the believer to be awake, alive to the things of God, growing in their knowledge of the God, on watch, careful, alert. The unbeliever is drunk, living for pleasure, indulging in sin, under the power and possession of sin, while the believer is called to be sober, alert, keeping their natural appetites in bounds, looking ahead to the coming of Christ and aiming to please him while living here on earth. And so verse eight says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The Thessalonians spiritual enemies were many and mighty and malicious. They needed to be well armed. They needed to be alert and they needed to stand firm in God. And so th this is, a similar idea as what Paul used in Ephesians. Remember, we were looking at Ephesians and Paul talked about putting on the full armor of God. Well, here we have as well the armor of God that the Thessalonians are urged to put on as they wait for the return of Christ in order to please him and live lives that glorify him in this life. So just briefly, we see that th th these, one, these, these armors is faith. Faith will keep them watchful and sober. Love. Hearts inflamed with the love of God will keep them pure in times of, of trial and temptation. And hope, hope of salvation. Hope of salvation will be as a helmet to defend them from being intoxicated with the pleasures of sin, which are but for a short time. And then finally, what is the ground of their hope, the hope of their salvation? Paul then moves to verses 9 and 10. And this is really the climax of this whole passage where he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. This is the root and the basis of the Thessalonians hope and the basis for which they are called to live this way in the light, asleep, awake, sober, and in the day. This is the Thessalonians' ground of the hope. And, and first and foremost, if we look at it, it's rooted in, in God's choosing. It says that God has not destined us for wrath, that God had graciously chosen them for salvation. If we would trace our salvation back to the first cause, it would be by God's grace by his appointment, we would, we would say that the biblical word for that is his election. These Thessalonians were chosen by God for salvation in order that God might show through them his mercy and grace and power and wisdom by saving them all to the praise of his glorious grace. 
And this would be the basis for, for them to live lives that are upright and awake and, and alert in this life. That they, were, that they were chosen by God, not destined for wrath, but chosen as objects of his grace and mercy and favor. The sureness and the firmness of the divine appointment is the great support and encouragement for their hope, and not just their hope, but for our hope especially considering that it has come through the death of Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. This is the good news of our salvation. So Paul is reminding them of the gospel. He's reminding them that the day of the Lord will come soon, that God will pour out his judgment on all who fall short of his righteous standard all who turn away from him, all who transgress his law. None will escape his wrath. But God has not destined his people for wrath, but to be saved through Christ. That he has prepared a way of salvation for Christ who died on the cross so that those who put their faith in him may be freely forgiven, brought out of darkness, woken up and made alive in Christ Jesus. Now the return of Christ is not a fearsome event for us who believe in him and have put our hope in his return. Rather, it is, it is what we're all waiting for. It is the hope of our salvation. It is what we're waiting for, that Christ will return and his people who have already fallen asleep will rise and those who are still alive will also arise and together we will join and be with the Lord in the air and we will live with him forever. Praise the Lord. So th this is the hope that the Thessalonians were hanging on to. And this is the hope that Paul was urging them to remember. But at this point, let me say the counterpoint. For anyone who may be here, who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't yet turned away from your sin and, and put your hope in Christ, there is a day of wrath prepared for the ungodly. It will come like a thief in the night like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and no one will escape. Abandon your good works as a way of salvation. Abandon your sin. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. He will in no ways cast you out. His blood atones for the sins of his people. He will bring you out of the darkness, into the light, into the truth, and into fellowship with God forever. Amen. Now, with this being said, with this glorious proclamation of the gospel and, and reminding the Thessalonians of their hope in Christ's return, what, what does Paul do? Let's look again at verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul shows us that the proper response as a Christian to the gospel the proper response is, well, one, that we are encouraged. We, we are encouraged, and so we are to be encouragers. We ought to encourage one another and build one another up in the Lord. This is the natural response, actually, to good news. When we receive good news, we feel better. If your boss comes in and says, Joshua, you have a raise. I mean, I, I feel pretty encouraged. Kids, if your grandpa comes and says, I'm going to bring you to Toys R Us and we're going to get you a nice big Christmas present. You feel encouraged and excited. 
When Luke proposed debris, neither of them are here. But when Luke proposed debris and she said yes, undoubtedly he was very encouraged and excited. This is the natural response when we hear good news. How much more then should we be encouraged by the good news of the gospel and then in turn become encouragers of others? And this is what Paul directs the Thessalonian church to do, to encourage one another, to build up one another in the realities of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. And and this is not an isolated command. We already saw it in, in chapter four, verse 18. It comes again in 5 verse 14. It comes all all over the New Testament. This is the expectation and the command for Christians that we are to be encouragers, encouragers of the body, building one another up in the Lord. So let's just consider one or two passages where this command is given, and then we'll look more deeply at it in detail. So in Ephesians 4, 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So here we see we are to use our words to build one another up. Then in Hebrews 10, uh, 24 and 25, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near. So we are to use our, our actions and our presence, our involvement in the body to encourage and build one another up. So when the body gathers, it is real encouragement to each other. Even just your presence is an encouragement. As we gather together, even, even though the, the activities of life are piling on and we get busy and, and burdened, but as we gather together, we are saying to each other, I value you, and I want to be an encourager to you as you are to me. And so that's why in the midst of everything else that I have going on, I put a priority on gathering with you so that we can build up one another in Christ to the glory of God. So let's consider again how how the scripture urges us to encourage one another. What what are the ways, according to the Bible, that we can do this? There's lots. We don't have time to go through all of them, but let's focus on four. For these four, we're going to take a bit of a stroll around the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to see how Paul encourages the Thessalonians and how the Thessalonians encourage Paul. So we'll see four points. One, Paul encourages them by reminding them of the gospel. Second, they encourage Paul by receiving it as the word of God. Third, they encourage Paul by responding to it as the word of God. And fourthly, Paul encourages them by affirming God's work in them. So these actually provide us a blueprint, a a biblical blueprint for encouragement and for upbuilding in the church. So let's examine each one, one by one. Firstly, Paul encourages them by reminding them of the gospel. We already saw how Paul did that. He He reminded the church of Christ's coming, of the day of the Lord, that we have not been destined for wrath, but saved through Christ. He reminded them of the glorious hope that they have in his appearing. And so when, he, when they were afflicted with heavy persecution, when they were facing trials, even to the point where perhaps some of them had been martyred for the faith, Paul encourages them first and foremost by reminding them of the gospel, the facts of the gospel, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, that Christ's 
rising saves them from the wrath to come, that they have a hope in Christ's return, that he died for them and he will raise them that they might live with him forever. He reminds them of God's sovereign election, that God destined them not for wrath, but to obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. It was not by their own works or merit, but the unmerited mercy and grace of God. This good news that Paul reminds them about is the bedrock foundation for the believer's encouragement as a Christian. In any situation, we can find encouragement as we remember the merciful, the merciful election of God that he would choose us. As we remember Christ's saving death for our sins, his powerful resurrection from the dead for our justification and the living hope that we have in his return and the promised glory that we will share with him in glory, that we will be with him and with his saints made perfect forever. Not only is this the bedrock of our own encouragement, but it is the only real source for encouraging others and comforting others. So th this is why in, in chapter four, verse 18, Paul says, therefore encourage one another with these words. What other words are you gonna use? You know, just, uh, I hope you have a good day or a stiff upper lip or what? No, we have the words of the gospel. This is the encouragement for our own faith and for our own walk. And these are the ingredients for encouraging our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, 13 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know what it means to exhort? Exhort means to strongly encourage. That's what Paul's commanding us. Remind one another of the gospel, as long as it's called today, that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that we may, may, that we may newly take courage in Christ, in God's sovereign choice, and in the work that Christ has done for us on the cross. Where do you look for your encouragement? Are you looking for it in your personal kind of spiritual thermometer and how you're doing spiritually? Are you looking for it in your own personal performance? Are you looking for it in others' approval, in your circumstances, in your, you know, in your human circumstances? We cannot stake our comfort or joy or joy on these things, but only on Christ. Where are you pointing others for encouragement? Paul shows us that real encouragement is found in Christ. It's found in the gospel by reminding our brothers and our sisters what Christ has done for us. We, we never graduate past this. This is A and it's a Z. This is what we are doing. This is what it means to admonish and exhort and encourage one another. With what? with the gospel, with what Christ has done, with the mercy of God and his grace in Christ Jesus. As we point to Jesus and to his work on the cross, we remind one another of what he has done for us. We spur one another on to be faithful to him until he returns, to be awake and alert and sober, encouraging one another by the fact that God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen. So where can we go when we are facing discouragement? Encourage one another with these words. Th this church must be a place where faint-hearted people are come, come and are built up and encouraged as they are taught and as they are reminded of what Christ has done for them. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, so that Paul's writing this church again, he again reiterates, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God use his gospel as we share it and encourage one another with it to build up this body to be not just a gospel preaching church, but also a gospel reminding church for the glory of his name. Second, Paul was encouraged himself. So the Thessalonians encouraged Paul as they received the word of God. Paul was not the only one doing encouraging. The love was going both ways. The Thessalonians themselves were encouraging Paul. Actually, this, this whole letter is a letter of appreciation for the encouragement that Paul received from God through their faith. So how did, Paul, how did they encourage Paul? Well, we can find two ways. First, in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of God, but as what it really is. Excuse me, not as the word of men, but what, as it, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Just to summarize, Paul was encouraged when they received the gospel from him, not as Paul's words, but as God's words. They encouraged Paul by accepting his message as the message of God, which it really is. And, and this shows us another way that we can encourage one another. We encourage one another when we receive God's word from each other as God's word. So whether it's, it's when the scriptures are taught on Sunday, um, when, when John brings us the word from the pulpit, or a Bible study, or a personal word of encouragement, when we are hearing, as long as it lines up with the scripture, what we are hearing is not man's words, but it is God's words. Something not to be ignored or discarded, but received and obeyed as the word of God. And, and when you do that, when you receive God's words from God's people, your reception of that is an encouragement to the body. Just as the Thessalonians' reception of Paul's message was an encouragement to him. And, and this encouragement is real. You encourage those who preach to you. You encourage those who pray for you. You encourage the brother or the sister who came to you with that word of correction or word of admonishment or, or word of rebuke. This past Wednesday, we had six new members give their, their testimonies. I was so encouraged to see how each one had received the, the word of God, not as opinions of men, but as the very word of God. As we meet together one-on-one, -on -one, as you gather together in your homes, as the ladies text each other the scriptures, these are not man's words. These are God's words. And when we receive God's words from God's people, it is a real encouragement to the whole body. So then this gives us an opportunity to examine myself, to examine ourselves. A am I receiving God's word from his people? A am I receiving God's word from my pastor, the one that God has charged with the care of my soul? Am I receiving God's word from my brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones whom I respo I'm responsible? Am I open to God's word in the preaching? Am I open as someone confronts me personally with the word of God? 
Is someone open to come knowing that I'll be receptive to them with God's help? Or do I find reasons to critique, criticize, find fault, or make excuses? Am I a source of encouragement in the way that I receive the word of God with God's help? Or am I robbing encouragement from my brothers and sisters by my resistance to receiving God's word? Thirdly, the Thessalonians encouraged Paul as they responded to God's word. So not only did they receive it, but it, it received and then it jiggled around and it bore fruit in their hearts. They responded with genuine obedience. So Paul remarks in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This, this was the response of the Thessalonian church. It was real, it was repentant, and it was obedient. The gospel came in power, and the evidence of that power was in the fruit of their life. It was crystal clear. They turned from idols to the living God. Their faith had gone forth everywhere. They were steadfast in persecution. Concerning their brotherly love, Paul said, I don't even have to write anything to you because you're already doing it. And that response to the word of God encouraged Paul. You have no idea how encouraging it is when we see the word of God bearing fruit in a person's life. So encouraging, especially for our brother as he labors in the word of God. So in, in chapter three, Apostle Paul is just effusive. He has no words for the appreciation that he has to God for the Thessalonian church. In verses chapter three, seven to nine, he says, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? What could Paul say to thank God for the growth in the Thessalonian church as they responded to God's word? It's the same with us. As we respond to the word of God in humility, God's, and God's, God, God in his spirit carries out his work of sanctification in us, we become testimonies to the power of the gospel. It's not our power. It's not our ability being showcased. But it's the power of God's spirit. The Christian's obedient response to the, to the word is a real encouragement to the body. I, I see this in you. I see sisters asking another sister to be a, an accountability partner and brothers to brothers. I see as fathers and husbands are trying to lead their husbands according to God's word, repenting for ways in which they have fallen short. I see wives seeking to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. I see uh, friends repenting to one another, forgiving each other and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. I see people sacrificially giving financially to bless one another with material abundance. I see parents adopting biblical patterns for raising their children in the fear and the admission of the Lord, e even patterns that are contrary to what our culture teaches. 
These and, and many other ways are examples of how this church is responding to the word of God. And it is encouraging. It is so encouraging. I can attest to the joy that your response to God's word produces in my heart and in our pastor's heart and actually within the whole church. I feel like Apostle Paul. What, what can we say? What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. And I know this is how Pastor John feels as well. So this gives us an opportunity. What an opportunity to be an encouragement to the body as we hear the word of God and receive it from each other. And as God in his mercy and grace bears fruit in our lives and God will do it. He had promised that he'll do it. On the other hand, this gives us an opportunity to, our exa to examine ourselves again. Are there areas in my life where I have yet responded? I have yet to respond to God in obedience. Am I knowingly resisting change in an area? Am I reluctant to open myself up in an area? Am I withdrawing from fellowship because of this one thing? This lack of response to the word of God is not just hindering you. My brother and my sister, you are in this way robbing your spiritual family of the encouragement that the Lord would give us through you. Lastly, Paul encourages the church by affirming God's work in them. And this brings us to the final way that encouragement is modeled in this book. Paul affirms the work of God in that church. This whole letter is overflowing with affirmation. And in chapter one, he says in, in verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. He affirms them. So he, here and in other places in the epistle, he is practicing what we call biblical affirmation. He is encouraging the believers by identifying evidences of the grace of God in them that are commendable and using it as an opportunity to highlight God's work and praising God for it. This is affirmation. This is biblical affirmation. Affirmation is another way that we can encourage one another and build each other up. We should be very careful. Affirmation is not just paying compliments. Affirmation is identifying evidences of the grace of God in people's life and using that as opportunities to praise God through that person for his work in that person. So in, there's, a, there's a helpful book that John helped me to understand this. In, in the book, Practicing Help, help uh, the book is called Practicing Affirmation. The man's name is Samuel Crabtree. Go figure. Samuel Crabtree defines biblical affirmation as truthfully declaring by complimentary word or action that which honors God. So by affirming the Thessalonians, Paul is acknowledging the work of God's grace in them. He attests that God is glorified through their hope in Christ, through their faith, and through their labor of love. So practicing biblical affirmation means being purposeful, being deliberate, and being truthful to identify the work of God in a person and then complimenting them not just complimenting them, but using that as an opportunity to praise God for them. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so one of the ways we can do this is by praising his handiwork in others. And Paul exemplifies this practice. He's constantly praising God, constantly giving thanks to God for his people. 
for his work and his people. So affirmation really requires a change in, in, in our focus, a right view of self and, and a right view of others. So in our pride, we naturally tend to overlook, minimize, and excuse our own weaknesses, magnify, exaggerate, and, and concentrate on others' weaknesses. Well, at the same time, um, magnifying and exaggerating and, 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 over, and overemphasizing our strengths and then overlooking and not paying uh, enough attention to other people's strengths. So affirmation acknowledges this tendency, repents of this as pride and asks for God to do a work in my heart to show love and humility to others. Practicing affirmation can have some pitfalls because we want to build others up for their good, not just stroke idolatrous desire for man's praise. So how can we do it right? How can we do it biblically? Sam Crabtree in the book has some helpful pointers. I'll just give you two. One is that good affirmation is God-centered. Good affirmation acknowledges that every virtue or every obedience ultimately is coming from God. The focus is not on, on the person per se, but it's on God performing his good work in that person. So Paul didn't directly thank the Thessalonians. He didn't say thank you. He says, thank God for his work in you. He acknowledged the virtue in them and he refreshes them and spurs them on, but ultimately he gives the object of his affirmation to God and God gets the glory. Secondly, good affirmation is rooted in the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that our heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. Unworthy, bankrupt sinners are invited to buy bread without money, purchased by Christ, crucified, who himself is the living bread. There's no room for boasting or pride. For, for what do we have that we did not receive as a gift of God's grace? Christ does the work, and he gets the glory. So God-honoring, gospel-centered affirmation points to a righteousness that's coming out in glimpses in people that's not theirs, but Christ's. So we can see, brother, you did that. That was Christ's righteousness in you at work. Praise God for that, for that work of God's grace in your life. This is gospel-centered affirmation. However incomplete the gift may be, Christ's work is commendable. So what do you think when you consider your brother and sister in the Lord? What sticks out most about them to you? What are the areas that you focus on? Is it areas where God is at work, where he is producing evidences of grace in your brother or in your sister that reveal his glory? And then are you taking active opportunities to commend them in those areas? To praise God for the righteousness of Christ given to them that's coming out in this godly displays of, 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 of Christian character? Or is your focus always on the weaknesses, on the areas where the growth is needed, or on the shortcomings? Those whose heart is full of love for others and love for God desire and are quick to spot his glorious handiwork in his people. However imperfect the virtue may be. On the other hand, as, as John Piper writes, when our mouths are empty of praise for others, probably it's because our hearts are full of love for self. May God help us to imitate Paul as we intentionally look for and affirm 
Christ-likeness in his body. And of course, there, there may be times where admonishment or correction is needed. But I believe that admonishment and correction, when it's given in an overall atmosphere of affirmation, is much more fruitful and profitable. Finally, let's look at the last part of verse 11. This is the closing, where Paul says, just as you are doing. Paul knew that this Thessalonian church was doing all of these things that he wanted them to do. They were already encouraging each other, already building each other up. This whole letter expresses his joy and thanksgiving for what they were already doing, and he just wanted them to keep on doing it. So in the same way, by God's grace, I can honestly and thankfully say that you are also a church that is actively engaged in encouraging and building one another up. You are reminding each other of the gospel as the foundation of our encouragement in Christ. I hear it in your conversations. I hear it in the testimonies that you share. I see it in the way you, in, you, in, you invite people to come to the service. I see it in the ways in which you help each other in the midst of the trials of life. You encourage me and you are encouraging all of us as you respond, as you receive God's word with humility. We can see ways in which God is at work in you. I can, I'm encouraged when you, we see ways of, that God is helping you to respond biblically to one another and respond biblically to his word. And you are also building each other up as I see ways in which you are affirming God's work in each other. This is a work of God's grace. May God help you to continue in this good work and expand even more through the building up of his church and for the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray.